0: Hi, welcome to the Cinematography Salon Podcast, a show about celebrating cinematography and inspiring both the current and next generation of visual artists, exploring the latest trends, techniques, technologies, and culture, and featuring exclusive interviews with some of the most talented and innovative cinematographers working today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cinematography Salon Podcast. My name is Peter Pascucci, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Ava Benjamin Shore. This week, we are so excited to be doing an in-person episode in Los Angeles with the legendary Atlas Lens Company and their co-founder and CEO, Dan Keynes. Atlas is known for disrupting the cinema lens market by creating affordable, high-performing anamorphic lenses that deliver vintage aesthetics with the conveniences of modern design. I've had the pleasure of shooting on both Atlas Orion series lenses as well as their more recent Mercury lenses. And I just love these lenses so much. Ava and I just had the privilege of getting a little bit of a tour around Atlas and seeing the Lens Museum and just getting to see so much rich history of anamorphic glass and lens history in general and we're just super happy to be here and talk to Dan today. Atlas has really become a household name in lensing and they arrived at the space fairly recently in 2016 and since then their lenses have been used on films like Babylon, The Creator, Bottoms, Don't Look Up. Some of their lenses were used in everything everywhere all at once and so many more incredible films. So we are very excited and privileged to be sitting down with Dan. Hello Dan and welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Peter. Hi, Ava. Thank you so much for having me on. So, Dan, we were wondering if you could share
0: your experience coming from cinematography and then creating Atlas and how this journey has influenced the company's philosophy of being for cinematographers by cinematographers. And I was curious to hear you talk about the intersection of cinematography and entrepreneurship. I think there's so many great examples of cinematographers who saw a need in the market and then were able to provide that service to other cinematographers. And yeah, so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's been a, a long journey. So I started in set lighting back in 2002 and became a local 728 lighting technician because I wanted to become a DP eventually. And I thought that the best opportunity to get paid and learn at the same time would be to be in lighting, because I could help set up the lights, observe the way cinematographers orchestrated the lighting for films and commercials. And after we did all the work, kind of sit and keep eyes on but get paid to observe the way that people would behave, interact, and work together. And uh, it was an amazing opportunity. So, you know, I would be on the rigging crew with people like Michael Bauman, who's now a cinematographer himself, people like Eric Messerschmidt, who was a gaffer that I would work for as a third electrician. And one of the people I met along that way was the digital imaging technician, Joshua Gaulish, who is now Deacon's DIT. Mm -hmm. And I'd I'd see, he's in this air-conditioned tent with some cables going in there and his monitors, and I'm out pulling much bigger cables, like 4-aught cables, and working with a team of people to lift 18Ks onto crank evader stands and burly stuff. And my back started to hurt. And I thought, hey, you know what? I know computers. I'm I'm kind of a computer nerd. Uh, I really know the technology that goes into what he's doing. Why don't I try to slowly make my way into that? Because I'd see some of the old codgers, you know, working at the Paramount lot. And I'm talking about people who are like only in their like 60s, which is not really that old, but they'd be crippled from the kind of work that they'd be doing. And I thought, I want to be a cinematographer. I don't want to be pulling cables till I'm 60 or 70 years old, but I still need to make a living, figure out my way. I slowly started making my way into doing commercials as a digital imaging technician and kind of proved my understanding of digital workflows and learned from some of the best out there. And then I started volunteering at the ASC master classes. And so I get to get exposure to a lot of the great cinematographers over there. And then before people were really shooting with large format digital sensor cameras, we were using things like Panasonic HVX200 camcorders with depth of field adapters. So I don't know if anybody's ever had to suffer through that, but a pretty painful experience. And then my friend had a Canon 20D, or he had a Rebel and a 20D, and you could flip the mirror up and see what the Super 35 size sensor on a 20D was seeing in real time. And I'm like we need to be recording that. So I'd predicted the digital SLR video revolution about a year before it happened. And so when Nikon introduced the D90, I jumped on the bandwagon of using the first DSLRs with video capability to shoot small-scale projects. And that was part of how I transitioned from being a digital imaging technician into being a, a cinematographer myself. And so it's kind of that scrappy level where you're like, okay, these are like consumer level tools, but we can use them to be so much more. And that DIY ethos was a part of growing up in skateboarding and growing up playing in hardcore bands with my friends, just making whatever you have access to work. And so that's been part of the driving philosophy of how I became who I am now and and doing what we do here at Atlas coming from taking whatever tools you have available, being as pragmatic as possible and stripping it down to the bare essentials and then building something up from there. Wow. It's so cool to hear the journey from lighting to DITing.
0: It makes so much sense that the success of Atlas is such a product of how steep you are in all these different facets of cinematography. And I would just love to hear too, like when the fascination for anamorphic started for you. And we just got the chance to look at this anamorphic museum, which was like so cool. And I'm like, How long does it take to collect something like that? And when was the first spark for you of starting to collect these lenses and starting to really look closely at anamorphic and think about how you can create your own?
1: I love that question. Yeah. So it's funny, the journey for what is now Atlas started at a time before I'd even thought about becoming a digital imaging technician. So in the early 2000s, I saw the movie Punch Drunk Love while it was in theaters and I was so taken with that film. That's the work of Robert Ellswood, ASC and Paul Thomas Anderson and Adam Sandler who you know we mostly think of as a comedic actor. But that was at that time sort of his first serious role. And that film left me asking why is the camera a character in this film? Or like how does the emotional state of Adam Sandler tie to what's going on with the camera? And so it led me to ask the question, why does this film look this way? Why does this film remind me of a lot of the films? I liked watching growing up movies like Blade Runner or Close Encounters of the Third Kind or Raiders of the Lost Ark. And what I found out is that the movie looks the way it does, not only because of the talent of all the production designers and costume designers and the great work of the actors and the cinematographer and the lighting team, but the lenses are the focal point through which all of that hard work is converted into what we're watching. And in particular, that movie was shot with Panavision G-series, some C-series and E-series lenses. And so I, I then asked the question, what is a Panavision G-series or C-series lens? like? Why does this exist? And that led me on a quest, and, and that's sort of like how I'd summarize every day that I I live. I, I just wake up and I say, why is this like this? And how can I either be a part of it or observe it or learn more about it? And what I came to find out is that, okay, anamorphic lenses exist primarily at that time to fill a format. Why? And then what I found when I asked that question was people had stopped going to the movies in the early 1950s as much because there was a new Netflix of their time in the home, which was TV. So people would stop going to the movies, and they would stay at home, watch free-to-air movies on television that they'd rescreen. So they wanted to create a movie experience that would make people leave their house and go experience cinema in an immersive way. I mean, again, history is repeating itself because now we have things like that dome. So there's the dome that's that's in Las Vegas. I don't so, know yeah. if... Yeah, have, have either of you experienced that yet? Not yet, yeah, no. No, I'm excited to try that Me out. Me too. <laughs> But, you know, we look at the Cinerama Dome, which is one of our Los Angeles landmarks here, and Cinerama was a way of doing a panoramic movie that would be sort of a precursor to virtual reality where you're immersed in the movie, and so it would fill your field of view. And so the studios put together Cinerama films, and they would book them like crazy. So people were going to the Cinerama screenings, and the studios took note and said, okay, this is a perfect proof of concept people will go to an immersive movie. But now we need to actually save money because Cinerama, you have to run three cameras. So you're running three times as much film. You're processing three times as much film. You need more crew to move these giant camera rigs. And then to try to synchronize these analog cameras, it was insane. And so the purpose of an anamorphic lens originally is a codec, basically a compressor, decompressor. So it's an optical codec. And so it's kind of very banal if you think about it in that way, but there's hidden magic to it. So they just wanted to be able to fill screens in a panoramic style while using normal square gauge film. Wow. Never thought of it as a Kodak. It's so interesting. It's really crazy, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
2: I think what I'm really inspired by hearing all this is that as a cinematographer, you know, like building your career and coming up, there's often this feeling that you cannot compete with world-class cinematographers. You're lacking resources. You're lacking the skills of a million other different department heads that are at the top of their game. And you're trying to set yourself apart. And I think that, I don't know, for me, I'm often feeling bad that I'm like lacking something. And I think what I love is this idea of building your own tools And giving yourself the things that you need as opposed to waiting for people to give those to you or to feel like you're validated at a point where you can like use those things. So I think like as anamorphic being a historically inaccessible thing for a lot of filmmakers, I'm really curious about what motivated you to hone in on anamorphic as the thing of all of the different things that you have been a part of, like why anamorphic of all things?
1: I love that question because it's, um, you hit the nail on the head. Basically, there's no reason that we should have to wait to be granted access to something if it's something that we love, right? We can't all wait for like our fairy godmother to come sprinkle us with magic fairy dust and then everything's good. And I think what taught me that ethos is two things, skateboarding and punk rock music. And so, you know, this week was a really special week for me because I got an email from one of my heroes, Ian MacKay, from Discord Records, from Fugazi and Minor Threat, and of all the people to get an email from to make me just feel something, I was like, wow, okay, this is like a very special moment for me. And like, that's cool because looking at what they did and, you know, that was like 20 years before my time in terms of playing punk rock music myself and like my friends and I being in a garage trying to make music with just thrift store guitars and drums and recording on cassettes. You only have these things, right? So this is what you use to make your express yourself, basically your self-expression And then skateboarding, you fall down a lot, but you always get up and try again. And then there's something to be said. Skateboarding and filmmaking, I think, to me, they're world-class things, but that doesn't mean they're above you. So it's something you should be able to engage in at whatever level you can touch it. And by that, I mean, nothing should be preventing you from trying, right, other than access to financial tools. And, like, that's one of the crazy things about Cinematography is that our medium as artists is inherently technical and inherently financial, right? So I'm not someone who takes a lot of time thinking about what privilege means or anything like that. But I think we're really privileged to be able to use these kind of tools in any way, in any capacity. And storytelling in a visual medium has existed since people were in caves. Do you know about the Lascaux Caves in France? So in France, there's these Lascaux caves, which were some of the, they can carbon date that it's some of the oldest human created art forms, visual art, right? And there's these cave paintings. So they were looking at these cave paintings and they're saying, we see that a lot of these cave paintings, there's like cows with two heads and like four sets of legs. And then there's these people that they have like four or eight arms, like why would people do that? And then the scientists thought maybe these people were tripping on mushrooms and so they were just representing what they would see in their mind's eye. But it wasn't until people went into the caves with flame and then as the flame is flickering they would see that the paintings on the wall would animate. And so motion picture has been part of the way that humans tell stories since people were in caves. So, you know, we often talk about like Plato's cave and that... Um, that time, but that's so much more further in the future than people in the Lascaux caves basically making the first animated motion pictures, for lack of a better word. And so this is something that really ties through humanity and to me is very touching and, and interesting and fascinating. And so we shouldn't let financial means necessarily prevent us from doing something, but we have to acknowledge that it's part of the world we live in. So I'm not someone who is going to get on a soapbox and say, money is bad, I love money. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, like I think it's great to be able to have capital and resources, and it's just another thing that we trade, right? It's it's a, a trading mechanism. But at the same time, I think it's exciting to empower people to try things that they might not have otherwise tried or might have thought was above them or outside of their reach. And thinking back, it's been an inspiration in my career the whole time, so I was pulling those cables and would see the privilege and luxury of being in an air-conditioned tent. And I said, hey, that's for me. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to learn it. I'm going to try it. And so anyone I talk to, I would encourage them, like, if you are curious about something, ask more questions. Don't be afraid to ask. Find out. And if you are told no, don't be afraid to ask again or ask someone else or find out. So that's really special to me. You know. And I think growing up skateboarding, falling a lot, watching the style of my friends skateboard, everybody skates differently, right? So there's nothing perfect about skateboarding. And I think that's one of the things that makes it special is that everybody has their own flair and their own characteristic style. And sometimes a very like steezy style where you're like flicking the board a certain way or moving your body in a certain way. It's a dance. And I think that's one of the most magical things about humanity is like, taking a personal feeling and then expressing it, communicating it to others. And cinematography in a way is like the next best thing to psychic communication because we're able to visualize and then create that vision, work with other people, share that vision, whether it's before the film is made and communicate around a vision and then make it into something and then project it into other people's minds. So that sounds a little bit trippy, but it's something that I think is like inherently part of human existence. And I feel really fortunate to be a part of it. (laughs) The story of the caves is so beautiful. I've, I've heard that before. And like, I think
0: when I first heard it, the person was comparing it to the cinema because in a way, the light bulb and the projector represents the fire and the screen represents the cave wall. And in a way, like a theater is dark and cool and like a cave and, you know, and like there's so many similarities and it just blows my mind how it's such an ancient ritual for us. And it's funny now how, People talk about like, oh, you know, streaming versus theaters and stuff, but it's like this thing is so ancient. And so, yeah, it's cool to hear you talk about that and how that inspired you.
1: It's a ritual, right? In a good way. Like it's a special ritual. And I think it transcends race, gender, everything. It's it's a human thing.
0: 100%. Yeah. So I wanted to hear from you a little bit about going back to NAB in 2017 and what it was like when you first introduced the 65 millimeter Orion prototype lens and I've heard a little bit about how cool the response was to that on the trade show floor, but if you just want to tell us some context around what led to that unveiling and how the community responded to it when it was first released.
1: Absolutely. So NAB 2017 was a really special time. It felt like lightning in a bottle for us because this was the first time that we'd revealed to the world that we existed. Prior to that, myself and Forrest Schultz, my co-founder, had been kind of working in secret and had spent a little over a year planning and developing the working prototype concept of what we thought would make a great anamorphic lens. So as I mentioned earlier, the design philosophy for the Orion series lenses was to make lenses that we always wanted to use but couldn't attain. And so both Forrest and I have a background in doing DIY anamorphic builds. And so what that consists of typically is like a flashback to like 2001, 2002. I found out what an anamorphic lens was by watching the film Punch Drunk Love and then asking why did Robert Elswit ASC use anamorphic lenses to make this movie? Why does this movie look this way? How could I start using anamorphic lenses to make pictures that remind me of a film I love, which is this film. And at that time, I didn't have access to any motion picture cameras at all. Like a video camera wasn't even something I owned. I just had a, a hand-me-down Minolta film stills camera from my parents that I used to take pictures of my friends skateboarding with. And so we had a darkroom in my junior high, and that's how I learned darkroom photography. And so that was like a very special time for me flashing way back. But I still had that camera, I still have it today, and I wanted to make portraits of my friends that would look like Punch Drunk Love. And I thought, well, how can I do this? So I thought, I just need an anamorphic lens, right, to put on my stills camera, that shouldn't be hard. And then I looked and there's nothing, you you can't just go buy that at the photo store, uh, you know, at at, um, Sammy's camera or something like that. And then anamorphic lenses, okay, they're at Panavision, I don't know. I don't have any money. I don't know anyone there. I'm afraid to call. So, how can I do something like this in my living room? So, I started searching anamorphic lenses and I saw there's these Soviet lenses called Lomo. Oh, these are $500. I'll never have $500 for a lens. And that's, you know, 2001, 2002 money, which is crazy because in 2016, 2017, Those same lenses that were $500 were $15,000 and nothing had changed with the lenses, just the world of cinematography had expanded. So more people were using cinema cameras, digital cinema cameras and and others, to make films and content. And so the price for those $500 anamorphic lenses had ballooned 3,000%. And so those $500 lenses, if only I'd had $500 at that time, I probably would have been satiated and not gone on this crazy journey but uh both forrest and i about 14 years apart had been tinkering with projector lenses basically we found out that the cheapest way to get an anamorphic lens of any kind was to go on ebay and find a decommissioned projector lens because in those early 2000s years they were starting to decommission film projection with anamorphic lenses with anamorphic negatives or anamorphic prints release prints and the market was filled with like or $40 or $50 projector lenses that were being taken out in favor of digital projection systems. So I bought a couple of those uh, Kowa anamorphic projector lenses, put them on my Minolta camera, and then would shoot stills, and then scan the negatives and de-squeeze them in Photoshop. And so that was my first experience building a DIY anamorphic lens by combining the Minolta camera with the Kowa projector lens. And that was really cool, and I put that on the side and forgot about it for years. And then much later, after starting Paralinks and then selling that company to the Vitech Group, I started looking online to see, because I still had that passion for that type of movie and that type of look. I thought, oh, I could maybe buy some of those lenses now. So I started looking and seeing what people were doing in the DIY world, and that's how I met Forrest. He was doing something very similar to what I'd been doing, crafting his combination of different lenses together, and making content with those. And I looked at what LOMOs were going for, and I was like, this is insane to buy a broken LOMO lens for $15,000 and then not know how to service it or if it'll work and do what I need it to do. And I'd built a lot of experience working on set at that point, so I understood you really need the lens to be reliable and work a certain way with the assistants and with everyone to flow and function in a day-to-day operation. So I was like, well, I really want to use these kind of lenses, and like, I don't really like the Cook anamorphic lenses, and they're really expensive. So what I could spend buying a set of Cook lenses, I could actually maybe put together a small team and build prototypes of what Forrest and I would think would be the best anamorphic cinematography lens that kind of balances what we want in a lens. And so that's what we did. I pooled my money that I would have bought a cook set after selling Paralinks. And so we used that money to build the prototypes. And so Forrest had been learning optical design. He was self-taught and comes from that same ethos of like, we can build this, we can learn this. Nothing is beyond our reach for learning. And uh, our chief optical engineer is Scott DeWald. And so I'd met him through some of the research I'd been doing in vision systems at Paralynx. And so he learned optical design for anamorphic lenses by being part of a conglomerate that was migrating from film projection to digital projection. So he learned with some of the best German optical masters. And he's a very practical guy, very brilliant optical engineer. So having the combination of kind of my pragmatic sensibilities and kind of whimsy, Forrest's ability to learn almost anything and and not be afraid to try things. He's a master at both mechanical and optical engineering, 3D printing, prototyping. And then Scott's deep knowledge in optical engineering combined to allow us to make those first Orion series prototypes. And so it was really lightning in a bottle to have these three. We built three prototypes, and I'd been shooting for a lot of the companies that were also exhibiting at NAB companies like DJI, because I'd gotten really into the drone thing early on. So I became one of the cinematographers that DJI would hire to shoot their content. So I had friends there, friends at Canon, friends at Panasonic, and so what we do is go around with the three lenses that we have, and every day disseminate them at different booths for a short amount of time, so that it seemed much bigger than it was. It was just three people, And my friend, NAR, who used to work at Red, he was a bomb, what they call a bomb squad rep. But having my friend NAR there also helped open doors for us with the people at Red. And we were able to product place these prototypes all over the place. And I built a good relationship with the people at Tiffin by saying, hey, you guys make filters. We're this young group of startups. We're trying to make lenses. So we'd be happy to kind of help do sweat equity in your booth, helping show your filters with our lenses if you're interested. And they were like, sure, tag along, kid, like whatever. You seem nice. And um, we built this great relationship. So they actually hosted us in the Tiffin booth free of charge for just like helping set up and tear down and man the booth. And um, they say never meet your heroes, but both Forrest and I were on the floor from early morning to late at night. And it got to be like the third day of the show And I was starving. I hadn't eaten any food. And uh, finally, I was like, I got to take a break. I'm going to go outside and get a hot dog or something. So I go out to get a hot dog. And my friend Nick runs outside as I'm in the line for the hot dog. And he says, you have to get back to the booth right now. Gareth Edwards is at the booth. Greg Fraser's at the booth. And I'm like, I haven't eaten anything. I'm starving. So I grab the hot dog I'm wolfing this thing down ketchup is all over my shirt I'm running back to the booth and then you get there and then Gareth is there and I I loved Rogue One like to me that's one of the best Star Wars movies still to this day it's so good and Gareth and Greg are there and I'm just like wow they're here and that's kind of unusual to see high profile cinematographers or directors at NAB NAB is normally like gearheads and Um, but it's kind of changed the demographics changing, it's shifting, but it was really a lightning in a bottle moment and they were both so kind and genuinely nice. And so we still have a like really nice relationship to this day.
2: Wow. That is so interesting. I love hearing stories about that era of filmmaking because there was so much in transition and it was so messy and so many different technologies happening all at once, it's really cool, having kind of been through the tail end of that as like a professional, it's really interesting to hear a lot of the history that's tied into all of that. I'm so fascinated by like early digital technology and you know, how we got to where we are now. And that was a really great anecdote, yeah.
1: And so much of it is gate kept still. So yes. not necessarily politically, but like The technology that's possible far exceeds what we use in our industry. It could be an advantage for those who are willing to take risks, but it's also painful if you step outside of it for a second and go like, why, you know, speaking of codecs, like, why are these codecs limited? Well, this consortium of people owns these patents, and so we can't use that. So we have to come up with some other way to do it, and it's, you know, if people are just a little more innovation friendly and like collaboration friendly, but because it's such a small bit of opportunity that people are fighting for, I think people tend to be more gatekeepy and weird about it. Yeah. And that's why part of the mission at Atlas is to like democratize lens Possibilities. Hi, we are excited to announce our partnership with Lowa Lenses by Venus Optics.
0: Lowa has had a long history of providing cinematographers with unique and state-of-the-art lens options, including their recent Proteus 2x Anamorphic series, which remains the most accessible T2.0 option in the market for professional production. A big thank you to Sandus for helping support our show as well, as part of their relentless reliability campaign. The extreme portable solid-state drive has become an essential on film sets and a personal favorite of mine for how durable, reliable, and fast it is. Sandus leads in drive and memory card technology, emphasizing not just storage, but everything worth keeping. We'd also like to thank our partner at Fujifilm. We're very grateful to them for supporting not just the podcast, but a lot of what we do at the cinematography salon. And with the release of their latest camera, GFX 100 The Second, they release a tool that opens up new creative possibilities. It's brands like these that remind us why we do what we do. It's more than just support. It's about being part of a community that values every shot and every story. Dan, we loved hearing about this whole story. It's, it's honestly so riveting and just fascinating. And it's really funny how, too, with the work that we do, how... We all have these like fascinations and hearing about you using that Minolta camera with projector lenses and stuff. It's like, I've had those same thoughts about like wanting to shoot 35 stills with anamorphic glass. And like, it's just so funny how there's such a common language to what we do. Um, But yeah, we're really excited to dive into some of the technical aspects of anamorphic glass, of Atlas glass specifically. And there's this, seems to be this resounding message with Atlas about where the tangible meets the intangible and how anamorphic optics really is a great example of that. And I've heard y'all talk about it and see it in some of the literature and things. And I'd love to take a little bit of time to hear your take on this concept of how optics is where the tangible meets the intangible. There's so many other parts of the image-making process that is more concrete, and you can really trace what's happening. But there's something about optics and glass that occupies this very mysterious and beautiful space. And yeah, I'd love to hear you just riff on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, glass as a material is really such an interesting thing. So it's what you might call liquid solid. And we look at something like this and say, oh, this piece of glass that we're all talking into all day long or looking at is flat, right? But to our human eyes, this is flat, it's very flat and smooth. But if you measure this, it's actually more like the surface of the Grand Canyon. There's so many peaks and valleys that make up this surface. And so this is just a very simple way of thinking of like how there's this entire world that's just outside of the areas that we can perceive that directly affects things that we experience on a daily basis and how changes or disruptions in that nanospace can then ripple into something that affects things that we are easily able to perceive. And so that's sort of one of the magical things about optics, that intersection of the tangible and intangible world that make making lenses and being a part of the lens world a constant fascination for me because there's always new things to learn, new things to discover, and it really stays fresh. So every day I wake up and I say, wow, what am I going to learn today? What am I going to get to experience that would be surprising and there are many surprises that we find out and we you know we can start to form hypotheses based on experiences but then sometimes those things get turned on their head things like chromatic aberration where we think well chromatic aberration should theoretically only be regulated by like the dispersion value of the glass so the way that the glass separates the wavelengths of light as it enters and exits the glass but then you find out that Actually, there are ways to coat the glass with another material that then reshapes those rays and gives it a different property on a surface level that can regulate chromatic aberration. So, that's something that might seem impossible, but then through material science, you discover oh, actually, there is a way to just tweak this a little bit and really improve or change the outcome. And so It's a science frontier that is easy to ignore because we often believe, oh, we're just seeing everything and feeling it. But the way you see something is different than the way you see something different than the way I see something. But there are similarities, right? And so that intersection of those similarities combined with our own personal flavor and also the ability to use science to say what is actually happening make it a really enjoyable field to be in. That's
2: so interesting to hear you explain chromatic aberration Because I've always just been like, well, that's annoying. But I think, you know, as a DP, like one of the reasons I'm drawn to it is because it is like part of that idea of never being able to master this job exactly. And it's like the more technical scientific things that you learn and know that can be manipulated, I think, add to your ability to visualize emotions and ideas that are presented to you through like films, fine art, and all other things that you might shoot. So yeah, that's so interesting. And I think like another thing that I've heard you talk about before is this idea of like anamorphic tool marks. And I was just hoping you could explain that idea to all of us. And then I'm also just curious, like generally, like why do you think people embrace tool marks of filmmaking as well as in other artistic endeavors?
1: So, going to the tool marks, you know, whether we keep them or reject them, we can't ignore them. New aesthetics can be developed, but I think the aesthetic that we, as filmmakers here in this room in this time period, mostly have experienced in our lifetimes, have certain qualities, and then the additive combination of those things informs and influences the way that we want to express ourselves, whether it's acceptance or rejection but for me it's mostly acceptance with some rejection so i'd like to embrace the things that made me feel something when i'd watch a film like punch drunk love or raiders of the lost ark or close encounters of the third kind and then if i can make any influence on future artists or the experience of people who are just viewers it's a way of sharing that memory right so it's it's a combination of memory plus imagination i mean It's really interesting to think about what is physically happening with an anamorphic lens that makes it such a complicated instrument. So you're literally taking light ray bundles from twice as wide, if it's a traditional cinemascope lens, two times as much light package and compressing it down onto a square piece of film or a sensor and so forcing those ray bundles to come through a piece of glass twice as much from the horizontal aspect as the vertical aspect makes them do weird things. It's not supposed to happen. As that light comes through the lens, you're gonna have oftentimes more astigmatism, which is like an inability for the lens to focus vertical rays and horizontal rays at the same time. And this is something that many of us experience in. Our human vision. So if our eyeball, our cornea is shaped in a toroid shape, so it's not a perfect circle, it might be like slightly football shaped uh, with a little bit of oval to it in the actual cornea, then the light rays can't focus on the retina at the same position vertically and horizontally. And so you might get kind of a smeariness either horizontally or vertically or even diagonally because organically, it just can't land at the same image plane in our brain. And so that's something that happens in an anamorphic lens, so you're going to get astigmatism. Depending on how you're focusing the lens, sometimes certain planes of focus might be squeezed or compressed more than other areas, so you'll get kind of a waviness. You'll get mumps, which is sort of a tendency when you're focusing closer on certain lenses for the center of the frame not to be compressed as much as it should be for the ratio for that anamorphic lens. And so people's faces tend to mop out or be wider than they are in real life, and so it makes people look distorted. Um, That's a geometric distortion that makes them sometimes less pleasant, but sometimes it's something we can embrace too, depending on how we're using it. There's more traditional geometric distortion that we think about. So the overall shape and geometry of the room or wherever we're filming might have a bit of a barrel shape to it, or it might be more of a pin cushion shape where the sides warp in more. And then you get the craziest one, which is mustache distortion. I love saying that, where it does both pin cushion distortion and barrel distortion at different parts of the frame. And so you get sort of this warping and curvature like this, like a Yosemite Sam mustache. So that's really fun. Wow. Never heard of that one. It's also a beautiful dance with the hands. Oh, thank you. I mean, that's my other uh, aspiration is, is interpretive dance, yeah. you can ask. One that I'm not super
0: familiar with that I've heard you talk about a little bit, but I'd be curious to hear a little bit about is coma. What's happening with
1: coma and lenses? Coma is a really interesting one. It comes from the notion of a comet, so streaking. And so if we look at the shape of the in-focus area or the out-of-focus area, it's easier to see in out-of-focus areas in the shape of the bokeh. So if we're, for instance, looking at a grid of light bulbs and one of the ones in the edge sort of stretches out or streaks this way, and the other one on the other side streaks this way, that would be a form of coma. So it's streaking through the image like a comet, and that's where the term coma comes from. And so it's sort of an inability for the optical system to correct and make a flat plane image either in the in-focus or out-of-focus area. And so typically if it's happening in the in-focus area, it looks smeary. So you can get either like a vertical smear, which is sometimes also astigmatism, or you get a horizontal and diagonal smear. And often coma is diagonal, so it's sort of a diagonal streaking of the out-of-focus area. And a lens that I can immediately identify coma in that maybe some of the viewers have recently seen are the Otto nemens Hasselblad rehoused housed tuned lenses they call Ottoblad. So the Ottoblads, if you look at their reference images, they have the bokeh really goes crazy and swirls out and stretches, not swirling like a Helios or like a Petzval lens, like the new Petzval X from ancient optics and old fast glass, which is sort of a more rounded bokeh where it kind of becomes a circle in the out-of-focus area and swirls but it's kind of the opposite, so it'll streak out in the opposite directions. But that Petzval effect is, in essence, a form of coma in the other direction as well.
2: And then coma is different from probably one of the biggest tool marks that we connect to anamorphic lenses, and that's the flares, right? So that's different from flaring.
1: The two top tier for me, like number one and number two, I love the oval-shaped bouquet, where if it's a front anamorphic or mid-anamorphic lens, the pupil shape of the lens is forcing out-of-focus areas to stretch, and so you'll get oval-shaped bouquet or a completely astigmatic bouquet where the out-of-focus area is just a vertical blur. And you see that style a lot with a lot of the Panavision lenses, and it's really one of the magnificent things that sets apart the Panavision optical design that is also emulated by the Zelmus lenses from Ukraine, which I think are actually really cool too. And I can't believe those guys can build lenses in the middle of a war being shelled. So respect and shout out to those guys, it's insane. Really interesting lenses. I personally love the Panavision look more, but I think it's cool for people to be trying something similar to that in this day and age. And then other ones that have that kind of characteristic would be like the Generation 1 Todd AO lenses that use a similar mechanism to the Panavision mechanism, but distinctly different actually. Wow. It's amazing. I think, yeah, for for me and I feel like for so many people listening,
0: like getting a peek behind the curtain of some of these things is just such a valuable education on this part of our work. And I feel like it's not often that we're able to absorb all of this. It's really cool to hear you talk about it. And it's so clear that Atlas as a product is a result of exploring so many of these tool marks and which ones to embrace and which ones to correct. And yeah, it's just, it's awesome.
1: Oh, and Ava mentioned the streak flares. So flares are definitely part of our toolkit as camera people, but if you think back more kind of traditional cinematography, most people avoid flares, but you get them accidentally, and so it becomes this chance encounter where it happens in a movie very seldom, but you see it and you go, oh, I saw that thing, what is that? It reveals the artifice and it kind of lifts the fourth wall. And we get to pierce the veil and see the mechanism of filmmaking. And I think that might be one of the reasons cinematographers are especially driven to that. But like in the 1950s and before when people were designing anamorphic lenses, they weren't designing them to have flare. They were doing their best to avoid flares because any imperfection would be antithetical to sort of the target of a lens. So traditionally up until modern times, people were designing lenses principally for having the most contrast or the most resolution and getting the best color performance that they could with the constraints of what they had. And now we get to experiment. Oftentimes a more technically perfect tool doesn't deliver a more aesthetically pleasing result. We don't necessarily go to the movies to see reality presented as a direct copy of what we really experience in life. We want something that is nuanced and expressive. And so I think that's a big part in which the tool marks like flares or oval bouquet can play a part.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. It, it almost kind of reminds me of, it's a little bit analogous to maybe art history too, where you have a movement of artists creating photorealistic paintings, right? And then as you get closer to the 19th century and like the modern art movement, you're increasingly seeing the tool marks and people are exploring and creating art that obviously plays with the concept of art itself, you know, and I think that it's fun that filmmaking has evolved into this place where the artists behind the camera can have a little bit more an expressive tool set at their disposal, as opposed to being perhaps locked into constant photorealism at like the max resolution and bit depth, because we've been like almost collectively been like, I don't know if that's what it is right now, you know, maybe in the future. But I think that there is a, a strong desire to move away from that and to find something that is more maybe human, you know, and maybe subtle and artistic. Yeah.
0: yeah, so Dan, like I think we've talked a lot about some of the impressionistic qualities of anamorphic. And I was listening to the camera image panel with Lena and ASC and Oren Sofer and Christopher Probe's ASC. And there was this great, topic that they touched on, which Linus was talking about how, in, in his opinion, like a 16 millimeter spherical lens to him is like the most realistic depiction optically. And I found that so interesting because I think that there is this idea that anamorphic occupies this more surrealist impressionistic space where a spherical might be perceived as more true to life. And in his opinion, the smaller format of 16 plus the spherical feels very what historically was used for documentary filmmaking and yeah, is this kind of very realistic way of shooting. And so I was curious of where you think Anamorphic falls on the spectrum of realism versus realism and just kind of how it offers this unique perspective and whether you think that it does actually relate more closely to human perception or not and what your thoughts are on this.
1: Yeah, I love it. There's a technical reason that I would attribute to Linus's perspective on why film might be more akin to seeing the real world in the most truthful, raw way. And like even more so, I'd go crazy and say, the iPhone is the 16mm of our time. And there's a technical reason for that, which is to say that with 16 millimeter film, the lenses are, number one, engineered for higher contrast so that you're getting more definition with a looser grain structure because you're working with larger granules when you're shooting 16 millimeter film. So the lenses by nature are designed to have higher contrast. So you get a tight contrast, more graininess on 16 typically. And then the image area of a 16 millimeter piece of film is very similar to the region of interest of our human retinas. So basically we're living in a stereoscopic roughly 16 millimeter world. But then there's other things that are happening with our brains, and every brain is different, where we're using region of interest scaling to use very technical thinking, where we're zooming in and out on what our area of interest is. And then depth of field can be defined by our pupils being larger or smaller, depending on how much light is entering. But if we're out in a sunny day like Jacques Cousteau on a boat, our eyes, our pupils, unless we're wearing really dark sunglasses, are going to be tightened down, so we're gonna get deep depth of field. Our retinas are kind of granular, like a 16 millimeter film, and we're kind of filling in detail cerebrally for what's happening. There's sort of a direct reason, I would say, that what he's saying is true. And then my perspective about why I'm drawn to anamorphic filmmaking as a way of kind of giving a human feel, to note what you said earlier about human imaging, is that it naturally selects to a human field of view. So if you have a CinemaScope aspect ratio, we're getting two times as wide of a horizontal field of view if both of our eyes are working as vertical. And then my brain tends to be right eye focused, so I have depth of field that's shallow by nature from this side kind of falling off, but this side being more honed in. And so there's a little bit of a skew in my vision, but we're always generating depth of field concepts depending on how relaxed or tense or focused we are on certain things. And so the human aspect of anamorphic imaging is the field of view, shallower depth of field generally, or like region of interest that's selectable by the camera operator, cinematographer, and camera assistant. And so there's something inherently human but slightly more you could say, relaxed or creative in some ways. Um, not that 16 millimeter is not creative, but it can be more truthful, I guess you could say, or more tied to reality, and even more so, this is the 16 millimeter camera and lens of our time. And so, as a documentarian, this is my favorite tool for making documentary films in the time we live in now. But I think that seeing youth be creative and make films and reels in a new format is exciting for me. The vertical video thing, I don't think it will last forever because I think we're gonna start having wearable computers and wearable vision systems more and more. And I'm not sure where that's gonna go, but I'm excited to see where it takes us because for me, that realm immersive vision is more in the anamorphic world. So even if it's completely technically generated by computers, I love the panoramic aspect ratio, whether it's Hasselblad XPan whether it's Cinrama or whether it's anamorphic imaging. And then there's something magical about doing like square format anamorphic, where you start with a, a tall, skinny sensor, and then use the anamorphic to make a square out of that, because then you get all those tool marks, like the bokeh and the streak flares, but then you also have the added benefit of like being compatible with the square format that people want. So that's a technique that we've been proponents of. I don't want to say that we're the pioneers in that area, but many of our users have been pioneers of using a tall sensor aspect ratio by turning the camera at 90 degrees and then using the anamorphic lens to make a near one by one or perfect one by one aspect. And we call that Atlas scope. So we have a white paper on it, but it lets you have all those traditional anamorphic tropes and tool marks with square deliverables that you can then nest sort of a iron cross framing out of. So you can deliver 16-9, you can deliver 9 by 16, and you can deliver 1 by 1 with one camera master.
2: I think what has been really interesting about hearing you speak is that I think your brain works in a very specific way. And I love hearing you describe things because you think really big and something that you've spoke of before, is this idea of the blue ocean. And I've been thinking about it so much ever since I heard it. And I know that the blue ocean idea was one of your like foundational tenants for the company for starting Atlas. And I was hoping that you could explain what this is. And then also like now that you've established Atlas, does the blue ocean philosophy still guide you? Because you've kind of done what you've set out to do.
1: I'm going to tear up here a little bit. I'm sorry. Thank you for such kind words and such complimentary things to say. And um, I mean, I hope that anybody listening and watching this is inspired to believe in themselves. And, you know, like, it's not that I'm special. I just stand on the shoulders of giants who came before me And then I also want to lift up the people around me and hopefully carry myself forward as well and carry these ideas forward because I think I've had such a fortunate and luck-filled and magic-filled life that I want to share that with everyone who we come in contact with and like really try to make people's lives better. And that, that blue ocean strategy, I can't take credit for inventing the concept of the blue ocean, again, standing on the shoulders of giants, but going places that other people are not necessarily doing something and then raising that ocean, like filling the water, a raising tide lifts all boats, right, is what people say. So I would hope that, like, even if you don't use Atlas lenses, that being exposed to the concept of anamorphic cinematography and the history of it and the art history that's informed cinematography in general inspires you, no matter where you are, to be a kinder person, a better person, a curious person, and someone who is patient enough to be present for those around you. So like, we're always in a pushing-shoving race to go somewhere or do something, but if we can take a moment to be curious about the experiences of others and see what we can learn from them, see how we can help them, It will help ourselves and it will help those who come after us. So I think that's really what the Blue Ocean is about. It's not about a race to the bottom, it's about filling the well for those who come ahead of us and behind us. And that's also a product strategy making products that are doing things that weren't being done. So answering the call, answering the need for camera people. It wasn't just me who needed a wireless HD transmitter it was a lot of people. And I think what we did at Paralinks empowered people to make better movies, cooler movies. And I think what's really special for me and to be a little bit vain, I think that the cool thing about Atlas is that not only does it empower people as a tool, it leaves tool marks, something that affects the image and lasts. I feel really, really lucky that people are using our lenses or even just using the thought of what we're, Proposing. There's so many more anamorphic lenses in 2024 than there were in 2016. And of course, we didn't make all of those lenses. Other people made some after us. But I'd like to think that the opportunity to even consider that might have come from seeing what we did and standing on our shoulder. And I'm not mad about it. We're going to continue to innovate and develop things that people not only need, want, and expect to make their kind of films, but things that I think in 2024 and beyond will surprise people in allowing them to do things that they didn't yet envision. And then the thing that's going to be rewarding for me is waking up one morning and seeing footage made by people with the tools that we made that surprises me. I think some of the most rewarding stuff is the surprise and nuance and creativity that comes from others using the soapbox that we allowed them to stand on. And that's really what Atlas is about, building that soapbox. Hearing you talk about this concept and
0: it being such a foundational element of Atlas is really cool because I think that another thing I'm really inspired by with Atlas and with your efforts are democratizing some of these tools, some of these techniques and the technology and making these things more accessible to the community and there's so many great examples of it with your company with things like the Wednesday lens day that you were telling us about and having this community effort being able to bring people into your offices here in LA and just having people be able to learn about lenses and experiment and the YouTube channel is also such a great source of, of information and the demo program too is this incredible tangible way of allowing people to experiment with Atlas lenses and I've had the awesome opportunity last year of getting to try out the Mercuries and one time being sent some really amazing Orion lenses and being able to put them into use on commercial projects and passion projects. And this community effort is so inspiring to me and and it's something that we're trying to do with the show as well. So it's really awesome to partner with people like you and to hear about how important those things are. And so I'd love to just hear you talk uh, in whatever capacity you want about that element of things and what it's been like to open your door, so to speak to the community and what some of that response has been and why you think that's an important part of what you're doing here at Atlas.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really a pleasure to be able to connect with cinematographers and learn from people who come in and also share things that we've experienced. So even the name Wednesday Lens Day is not something that I was clever enough to come up with I have to thank Sarah Weldon for coming up with the name Wednesday, Wednesday. It's so great. It's so fitting. And she came up with that concept because she came to a couple of our Wednesday open house events. And there was such a connection that she was like, yeah, we got to call this Wednesday, Wednesday. And I'm like, yeah, we do. It's perfect. And so I think it's just something that we set a dedicated time every Wednesday for this because we want it to be something that you don't have fear of missing out on. So of course there will be some Wednesday Wednesdays that are spectacular where it's like lightning in a bottle and the most amazing things happen and there'll be other banal ones where it's just like nobody even comes, but that's okay. You didn't miss anything, we're gonna do it again. And that comes with the skateboarding idea. So there was this group of skaters they would do something that they called Big Wednesday, and it's just coincidental that it's also Wednesday, but they would literally set up a mini ramp and do a skate demo, and then things would happen by just being there, going back to the craft, honing it, and being repetitive. And that's something that I've applied to my life in the way that I exercise. So, like, I hate exercise. Honestly, I don't like exercising, but my health has been transformed by literally being consistent and doing it daily. And so I think that making a daily ritual or a weekly ritual that you make a practice, no matter what you're doing, whether you're a cinematographer or you're listening to this and you're in post-production, finding something that you can come back to will let you consistently iterate and improve and make life better for yourself or learn something often we're just scattered to the wind by happenstance. And so I think being able to come back to something and hone it, you know, it's that 10,000 hours coming back and doing something that really lets you master it and then continuously learn. And so that's why Wednesday, Wednesday is one of the most special things. And, And community is essential, but it's really meant to be just a fun time for both the employees who work here and for people who visit. So Wednesday, Wednesday is not just for them, it's for us too. And we actually do something really fun here, which is um, hacky sack. So I don't get to hacky sack daily anymore, but we would, at the early stages of the company, I'd have time to like literally play hacky sack for 15 minutes every day with a team because I didn't like seeing people shackled to a desk, whether you're a lens technician building lenses or you're an engineer designing lenses or you're in shipping lenses. We're often so focused on work that... There needs to be a little bit of play time, and I think playing together makes for better play. So the hacky sack time is just a way of being active, and then it's kind of aimless. It's a sport, but it's aimless, so aims can be developed. It's just like skateboarding, like it's a dance. Hacky sack is a dance, too. So you can be interpretive, you can have fun, and things are discovered. And so I think that sense of discovery makes it really fun, and that's why the community is essential to what we do. It's awesome.
0: I learned about this hacky-sacking ritual watching some videos on YouTube. And then when I pulled into the lot today, something caught the corner of my eye and I heard like a roar of like laughter. And I looked over and it was like the whole Atlas team in a big circle in the parking lot, hacky-sacking. And I was like, wow, this is wild that y'all actually do this on a, <laughs> it was like, it was so cool. I loved seeing it in the flesh after hearing about it. It's awesome.
2: I guess hearing about all the creativity that's infused within the company ethos, I'm really excited and interested to hear about maybe what some of the things you're developing are and things you can maybe talk about publicly and things that might be exciting to DPs and filmmakers?
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you asked. So I think that one of the primary focuses for 2024 is to get all the people who've pre-ordered Mercury's their Mercury lenses. And so it's one thing to sell this future blue ocean place of these new products, and in many ways, Mercury lenses are still a new product, so it's still so fresh that the first three Mercury lenses that people pre-ordered are still rolling out in delivery. So we're making weekly deliveries, and so that's really the key focus for our manufacturing and production team, and shipping team, and sales team is getting people the things that they pre-ordered and accelerating the pace that happens, so that people are pleased instead of being displeased because. It's a very fortunate thing that the lenses are in demand and that people want them, but of course it's also irksome if you really want something and you have to wait time to get it. And so that's one of the key focuses. But if you love Orion series lenses, that's something we have readily available in inventory. And because we've been doing it for long enough now, we're very good and very fast at getting those. So even new Orions that are on the very near horizon will be able to deliver to you much faster than a Mercury lens. And, of course, people are going to be like, why can they deliver these new Orion lenses faster than they can deliver the Mercury lenses? And it's just a completely different architecture, and that's part of what makes Mercury so special is that it is so compact, and the architecture that we're using to empower that does make it take more time to assemble and meet all of our quality expectations so everybody who gets their lenses is not just pleased with them, but satisfied for theoretically life. So we want to make a lifetime product, not a flash in the pan flavor of the month product. We want something that will stay with you for your cinematography career as long as you'll have it. And so to that point, if you're an Orion Series user or if you've never used them, I'd encourage you to try them. It's a great opportunity to try a newly made but traditional anamorphic lens and Mercury series are a vision for what anamorphic lenses can be in a way that hasn't necessarily been explored globally yet. So it's something that's still burgeoning and developing, and there will be more Mercury lenses besides what is known. Beyond that, one of the things I'm really excited to reveal this year is something that will be useful for many people outside of even anamorphic lens users. So it's not a spherical lens, I'll say that. I don't know if anybody saw our serious series lenses, but it started as an April Fool's joke, but it's a joke that we took a little too far, and actually the joke is real. So they're real working prototypes, and we can show them to you at Wednesday, Wednesday, if you want to see them. All we did was take Orion series lenses and take the anamorphic stuff out and then retune the lenses so that they still work. But this thing that I'm alluding to that I'm hoping to show this year and hopefully be able to deliver this year is something that I think people are going to be really excited about and talking about lifting all Cs, it's something that if you're using 16 millimeter cameras, you're going to love it. If you're using digital full frame cameras, you're probably going to love it. And so it really expands a broad expanse of possibilities. And I think the things that are going to make this thing the most fun for people is that it will do things that you haven't yet seen and that open possibilities that I haven't yet seen. So I think what happens next is going to be one of the most pleasant things for me personally to see what people do with it and change cinematography yet again. So fingers crossed, I don't want to blow too much smoke in the air, but I think it's going to be neat.
0: Wow. So exciting, so mysterious and interesting. I can't wait to see it unveiled. Well, Dan, I can't thank you enough for today. Honestly, uh, welcoming us into your space and giving us so much of your time to dive into these very technical topics as well as just some incredible philosophy around what Atlas is and your philosophy is so inspiring. So yes, thank you so much and I really hope that we get to do this again and I can't wait to also follow, like you, what people are doing with Atlas
1: products and experiment myself. Um, Such an exciting time. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you so much, Ava. It's been a pleasure being on the cinematography Podcast after having listened to so many of them and, and really enjoyed it myself.
2: Yeah, thank you. This has been a really inspiring and enlightening and thought-provoking conversation. And I love that we have melded the technical and the philosophical and it. it's so fun to like <laughs> unite those things together. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much. This episode of the Cinematography Salon Podcast was produced by Peter Pascucci, Ava Benjamin Shore, and David Kruta, with original music by One Wave and edited by Corey Abel. We created this episode in partnership with the Cinematography Salon, and we would like to extend a special thanks to the Salon community for supporting our efforts with this show. We'd also like to extend our gratitude to Able Cine for their continued support. If you're unfamiliar with their offerings, Able Cine provides services such as equipment rentals, sales, maintenance, training, and much more. Additionally, they host complimentary events at their various locations. For more details, please visit AbelCine.com. If you enjoyed listening to the show, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media to stay up to date with
2: our latest episodes and news. Thanks!